Welcome to this Upila Audio presentation of The Boy Fortune Hunters in Panama by Floyd Akers. Volume 2, Chapter 4, We Come to Grief. Fortune seemed to favor the voyage of the Gladys H. All the way to Hatteras, the weather was delightful and the breeze fresh and constant. There was not a moment when the sails were not bulging to some extent, and in spite of the old ship's labored motion, we made excellent time. However, I followed my instructions, keeping well to the coast, and so kept steadily down to Key West. Here an important proposition confronted us, whether to enter the Gulf of Mexico and follow its great circle near to the shore, a method that would require weeks, or run across to Cuba and then attempt the passage of the Caribbean by the shortcut to Cologne or Potrobella. We had canvassed this alternative before I left harbor, but Mr. Harlan had maintained that I must decide the question for myself, being guided by the actions of the bark and the condition of the weather. Both these requirements seemed favorable for the shortcut. The ship had behaved so far much better than I had expected, and the good weather seemed likely to hold for some time longer. So after a conference with Ned Britton, for my uncle Naboth refused to, quote, mix himself up in the business, or even an opinion, I decided to take the chances and follow the shortest route. After reaching Cologne, I would keep close to land, way down to the Horn. So we stood out to sea, made Cuba easily, and skirted the western point to the Isles of De Pinos. Still, the skies were clear and the breeze favorable, and with good courage we headed south in a beeline for Cologne. And now we were in the Caribbean, that famous sea whose very name breathes romance. It recalls to us the earliest explorers, the gold seekers, and the buccaneers. In fact, there is scarce an inch of its rippling surface that is unable to boast some tragedy or adventure in the days of the Spanish main, when ships of all nations thronged the waters of the West Indies. For three whole days, luck was our bedfellow. Then, as Uncle Naboth dryly remarked, it went to fishing and left us to take care of ourselves. With gentle sighs, our hitherto faithful breeze deserted us, and our sails flapped idly for a time, and then lay still, while the ship floated upon a sheet of brilliant blue glass. The tropic sun beat fiercely down upon us, and all signs of life and animation came to an end. No sailor is partial to calms, a gale he fights with a sense of elation and a resolve to conquer, a favoring breeze he considers his right. But a glassy sea and listless drooping sails are his special horror. Nevertheless, he is accustomed to endure this tedium and has learned by long experience how best to enliven such depressive periods. Our men found they possessed a violinist, not an unskilled fiddler by any means and to his accompanying strains they sang and danced like so many happy children. Uncle Naboth and Ned Britton played endless games of pinochle under the deck awning, and I brought out my favorite books and stretched myself in a reclining chair to enjoy them. Duncan Moyt, 
paced deliberately up and down for the first two days, engrossed in his own musings. Then he decided to go over to his machine and give it a careful examination. He removed the cover, started his engines, and let them perform for the amusement of the amazed sailors, who formed a curious but respectful group around him. Finally, they cleared a space on the deck, and Moit removed the guy ropes that anchored his invention and ran his auto slowly up and down to the undisguised delight of the men. He would allow six or eight of them to enter the car and ride, sixteen feet forward, around the mainmast, and sixteen feet back. And it was laughable to watch the gravity of their faces as they held fast to the edge, bravely resolving to endure the dangers of this wonderful mode of locomotion. No one had ever ridden in an automobile before, and although Moit merely allowed it to crawl over its confined course, the ride was a strange and fascinating experience for the men. I must allow that the performance of this clever machine astonished me. The inventor was able to start it from his seat by means of a simple lever, and it was always under perfect control. The engines worked so noiselessly that you had to put your ears close in order to hear them at all and the perfection of the workmanship could not fail to arouse my intense admiration. If this new metal of yours is so durable as you claim, I said to Moyt, the machine ought to last for years and years. My claim is that it is practically indestructible, he answered in a tone of conviction. But you still have a tire problem, I remarked. A puncture will put you out of business as quickly as it would any other machine. A puncture, he exclaimed. Why, these tires cannot puncture, sir. Why not? They are not inflated. What? It is another of my inventions, Captain Steele. Inside each casing is a mass of sponge rubber of a peculiarly resilient and vigorous character. And within the casing itself is embedded a net of steel wire, which will not allow the vulcanized rubber to be cut to any depth. The result is an excellent tire that cannot be punctured, and has great permanency. You don't seem to have overlooked any important point, I observed admiringly. Ah, that is the one thing that is now occupying my mind, he responded quickly. That is why I have been testing the machine today, even in the limited way that is alone possible. I am haunted by the constant fear that I have overlooked some important point which another might discover. And have you found such a thing? No, to all appearances the device is perfect, but who can tell what may yet develop? Well, I can't, I said with a smile. You have discounted my mechanical skill already. To my mind the invention seems in every way admirable, Mr. Moyd. For nine days we lay becalmed, with cloudless skies above and a tranquil sea around us. During the day we rested drowsily in the oppressive heat, but the nights were always cooler and myriads of brilliant stars made it nearly as light as day. Ned had taken in every yard of canvas except a square sail which he rigged forward. He took the added precaution to lash every movable thing firmly to its place. After this we've got to expect ugly weather, he announced, as he knew the Caribbean well this preparation somewhat dismayed me. I began to wish we had entered the Gulf of Mexico and made the roundabout trip, 
but it was too late for those regrets now, and we had to make the best of our present outlook. Personally, I descended into the hold and examined with care the seams, finding that the cocky was still holding securely so far, and that we were as right and tight as when we had first sailed. But even this assurance was not especially encouraging, for we had met with no weather that a canoe might not have lived through without shipping more than a few drops of sea. The ninth day was insufferably hot, and the evening brought no relief. Ned Britton's face looked grave and worried. I overheard him advising Duncan Moyt to add several more anchor ropes to those that secured his machine. We awaited the change in weather anxiously enough, and toward midnight the stars began to be blotted out, until shortly a black pall overhung the ship. The air seemed vibrant and full of an electric feel that drew heavily upon one's nerves, but so far there had been no breath of wind. At last, when it seemed we could wait no longer, a distant murmur was heard, drawing ever nearer and louder until its roar smote our ears like a discharge of artillery. The ship began to roll restlessly, and then the gale and the waves broke upon us at the same instant and with full force. Heavily weighted and lazy as the bark was, she failed to rise to the first big wave, which washed over her with such resistless power that it would have swept every living soul away had we not clung desperately to the rigging. It seemed to me that I was immersed in a wild, seething flood for several minutes, but they must have been seconds instead, for presently the water was gone and the wind endeavoring to tear me from my hold. The square sail held by good luck, and the ship began to stagger onward, bowing her head deep and submitting to constant floods that washed her from end to end. There was not much that could be done to ease her, and the fervent excitement of those first hours kept us all looking after our personal safety. Along we went, scudding before the gale, which maintained its intensity unabated, and fortunately drove us along the very course we had mapped out. The morning relieved the gloom, but did not lessen the forces of the storm. The waves were rolling pretty high, and all faces were serious or fearful, according to the disposition of their owners. And our old Saracen, or even the Flipper, I would not have minded the blow or the sea. But here was a craft of a different sort, and I did not know how she might hold up under such dreadful weather. I got Ned into the cabin, where we stood like a couple of drenched rats, and discussed the situation. On deck, our voices couldn't have been heard. Are the small boats ready to launch? I asked. All ready, sir, but I doubt if they'd live long, he replied. However, this here old bulk seems to be doing pretty decent. She lies low, being so heavily loaded, unless the waves break over her. That saves her a good deal of strain, Sam. If she don't spring a leak in the cargo hold, We'll get through this all right. Have you tried the pumps? Yes, only built so far. Very good. How long do you think the gale will last? Days, maybe, in these waters. There's no rule to go by, as I knows of. It'll just blow till it blows itself out. He went on deck again, keeping an eye always on the ship, 
and trying to carry just enough canvas to hold her steady. Duncan Moyt and Uncle Naboth kept to their cabins and were equally unconcerned. The latter was an old voyager and realized it was best to be philosophical. The former had never been at sea before and had no idea of our danger. On the third morning of this wild and persistent tempest, the boatswain came to where Ned and I clung to the riggings and said, She's leaking, sir. Badly? Pretty bad, sir. Get the pump's man, Ned, I said. I'll go below and investigate. I crawled into the hole through the forecastle cubby, as we dared not remove the hatches. I took along a sailor to carry the lantern, and we were not long in making the discovery that the Gladys H. was leaking like a sieve. Several of the seams that Mr. Harlan had caused to be caulked so carefully had reopened, and the water was spurting through in a dozen streams. I got back to my cabin and made a careful examination of the chart. According to my calculations, we were not far from the coast of Panama. If I was right, another six hours would bring us to the shore. But I was not sure of my reckoning since that fearful gale had struck us. So the question whether or not the ship could live six hours longer worried me considerably. For the pumps were of limited capacity, and the water was gaining on us every minute. I told Uncle Naboth our difficulty and Duncan Moyt, who stood by, and listened to my story with lively interest. "'Will you try to beat her, Sam?' inquired my uncle with his usual calmness. "'Of course, sir. If we manage to float long enough to reach the land, that is the best I can hope for now. By good luck, the coast of Panama is low and marshy, and if we can drive the tub against there, the cargo may be saved to the owners.' "'Ain't much of a country to land in, Sam, is it?' Not a very lovely place, Uncle, I've been told. It's where they're digging the canal, ain't it? I believe so. Well, we may get a chance to see the ditch. This here travelin' is full of surprises, Mr. Moyt. I never thought to a brung a guidebook of Panama, or we could tell exactly where they make the hats. The inventor appeared ill at ease. I could understand the man's disappointment and anxiety well enough. To beach his beloved machine on a semi-barbarous tropical shore was not what he had anticipated. I had time to feel sorry for him while thinking about my own troubles. He followed me on deck presently, and I saw him take a good look at the sea and shake his head despondently. The convertible automobile might work in ordinary water, but it was not intended for such mammoth waves as these. Then Moyt watched the men at the pumps. They worked with a will, but in that cheerless way peculiar to sailors when they are forced to undertake this desperate duty. The ocean was pushing in, and they were trying to keep it out, and such a pitiful struggle usually results in the favor of the ocean. Suddenly, Moyt conceived of a brilliant idea. He asked for a length of hose, and when it was brought, he threw off the covering of his machine and succeeded in attaching the hose to his engines. The other end we dropped into the hold, and presently, despite the lurching and plunging of the ship, the engine started, and a stream, the full size of the hose, was sucked up and sent flowing into the scuppers. It really did work better than the ship's pups, 
and I am now positive that this clever arrangement was all that enabled us to float until we made it to the coast. In the afternoon, while the gale seemed to redouble its force, we sighted land, low, murky, and uninteresting, but nevertheless land, and we made directly for it. Darkness came upon us swiftly, but we held our course, still pumping for dear life, and awaiting with tense nerves the moment of impact. What the shore of which we had caught a glimpse of might be like, I did not know, more than it was reported low and sandy at the ocean's edge, and marshy in the interior. There were a few rocky islands to the south of the isthmus, and there might be rocks or breakers at any point, for all we knew. If the ship struck one of these, we were surely doomed. On and on we flew, with blackness all around us, until on a sudden the bow raised and our speed slackened so abruptly that we were all thrown prostrate against the deck. The mainmast snapped and fell with a deafening crash, and slowly the ship rolled to starboard until the deck stood at a sharp angle and trembled for a few brief moments, and then lay still. The voyage of the Gladys H. had come to an end. Chapter 5. Making the Best of It Are you there, Sam? Yes, Ned. Are you safe and sound? I think so. Overhead, the wind still whistled, but more moderately. Around me I could hear the men stirring with an occasional groan. We had come from the tempest-tossed seas into a place of comparative quiet, which just now was darker than the pocket of Erebus. I found the after-cabin and slid down the steps, which inclined sideways. Inside, however, the hanging lamps had withstood the shock and still cast a dim light over the room. I found Uncle Naboth, reclining upon a bench with his feet braced against a table, while he puffed away complacently on one of his enormous cigars. "'Stopped at a way station, have we, Sam?' he inquired. "'So it appears, Uncle. Any damage?' "'Can't tell yet. Were you hurt?' He exhibited a great lump on his forehead, but smiled sweetly. "'You should have seen me dive under the table, Sam.' It were a regular circus, with me, the chief acrobat. Where are we? I'm going to go find out. I unhooked both lanterns and started up the companionway with them. Rather than remain in the dark, Uncle Naboth brought himself and his cigar after me. I gave Ned one of the lights, and we began to look about us. Duncan Moyt lay unconscious beside his machine, the engines of which were still running smoothly. I threw back the lever and stopped them. Then a couple of seamen carried the inventor into the cabin. Nux had lit another lantern, and with my uncle's assistance, undertook to do what he could to restore the injured man. Ned and I slid aft and found the stern still washed by a succession of waves that dashed over it. Walking the deck was difficult because the ship listed from stem to stern and from port to starboard. Her bow was high and dry in a sandbar, or such as I imagined it to be. But it was only after I had swung the lantern up a halyard of the foremast so that its dim rays could illumine the largest possible area 
that I discovered that we had plunged straight into a deep inlet of the coast. On the side of us appeared to be a rank growth of tangled shrubs or underbrush. On the other was the outline of a forest. Ahead was clear water, but its shallow depth had prevented us from proceeding further inland. Either the gale had lessened perceptibly, or we did not feel it so keenly in our sheltered position. An examination of the men showed that one of them had broken an arm, and several others were badly bruised, but there were no serious casualties. The ship was now without any motion whatsoever, being fast on the bottom of the inlet. The breakers that curled over the stern did her no damage, and these seemed to be gradually lessening in force. Ned had sent his tired men to their bunks, and with the assistance of Brionia, who was almost as skillful in surgery as in cooking, prepared to set the broken arm and attend to those who were the most bruised. I went to the cabin again and found that Uncle Naboth and Nux had been successful in restoring Duncan Moyt, who was sitting up and looking around him with a dazed expression. I saw he was not much hurt, the fall having merely stunned him for the time being. My machine! My machine! He was muttering anxiously. It's all right, sir, I assured him. I shut down the engines, and she seems to have weathered the shock in good shape. He seemed relieved by this report, and passed his hand across his brow as if to clear his brain. Where are we? was his next query. No one knows, sir, but we are landed high and dry, and I'm almost sure it's some part of the coast of Panama. Tomorrow morning we can determine our location more accurately. But now, Mr. Moyt, I recommend you tumble into your bunk and get all the rest you can before daybreak. The strain of the last few days had been severe upon all of us, and now that the demand for work or vigilance was removed, we found that our strength had been overtaxed. I left Ned to set a watch and sought my own bed, on which I stretched myself to fall asleep in half a minute. Wake up, Master Sam, said Nux, shaking me. Breakfast is ready, sir. I rubbed my eyes and sat up. The sun was streaming through the cabin window, which was on the port side. Around me a peculiar silence was contrasted strongly with the turmoil that had so long buffeted my ears. The gale had passed on and left us to count the mischief it had caused. What time is it, Nux? I had a cloak, Master Sam. I sprang up now, fully conscious of the nice tragedy, which sleep had for a time driven from my mind. Nux stood with my basin and towel, and his calmness encouraged me to bathe before I went on deck. In the mess cabin I found that the table legs had been propped up with boxes to hold it level, and that a hot breakfast had been prepared, and was now steaming on the table. Around the board were gathered Ned Britton, Uncle Naboth, and Duncan Moyt, all busily engaged in eating. They greeted me cheerfully, and bade me sit down and join them. "'How is everything, Ned?' I inquired anxiously. "'Bad as can be, and right as a trivet, Sam,' he replied. "'The Gladys H. will never float again. Her bottom's all smashed in, and she's fast in the mud till she goes to pieces and makes kindling wood for the engines.' "'Then the cargo is safe, for the present?' "'To be sure, can't get lost.' 
because it's a chunk of steel. If the ship's planks will hold it in place for a long time. It'll get good and soaked, but I've noticed it's all painted to keep it from rusting. This ain't St. Pedro, whatever else it is. And the voyage has miscarried a bit. But them beans is a good deal better off here than at the bottom of the sea. So I take it we've done the best we could by the owners. I sat down and took the coffee Nux poured for me. What about the crew? I asked. Are the men all right? Nobody hurt but Dick Lombard. His arm will mend nicely. Do you have any idea where we are, Ned? Stuck in a river somewhere. Wild country all around us, but I guess we could find a way out. Lots of provisions and a good climate. You could say we're in luck, Sam. I shook my head dismally. It did not appear to me that luck had especially favored us. To be sure, we might have gone to the bottom of the Caribbean in the gale, but it struck me we had landed the cargo in an awkward place for the owners as well as ourselves. Mr. Harlan would have done better had he not taken the long chance of our making the voyage to San Pedro successfully. Well, I can't see that we have failed in our duty in any way, I remarked as cheerfully as I could. So we may as well make the best of it. This being a tourist and traveling for pleasure is more fun than kicking a mule, said Uncle Naboth. Sam's got to worry because he's paid for it. But we passengers can look on and enjoy ourselves, eh, Mr. Moit? It is a serious situation for me, replied the inventor. Think of it, gentlemen. The most wonderful piece of mechanism the world has yet known is stranded in a wilderness far from civilization. That is your own fault, remarked Ned bluntly. No, sir, it is fate. The machine's fine, I said. You'll have no trouble to save it. As for that, I must, of course, make the best of the adverse circumstances that have overtaken me. It is not my nature to easily be discouraged, else I could never have accomplished what I have in the perfection of any inventions. My greatest regret at this moment is that the world will be deprived for a longer period than I intended of the benefits of my convertible automobile. Having never known its excellent quality, sir, the world can darn well wait, asserted Uncle Naboth philosophically. I have noticed one can be quite philosophical over another person's difficulties. Having hurried through our breakfast, which our faithful Brionia had prepared most excellently, in spite of the fact that his galley was at an angle of nearly 45 degrees, I went on deck to obtain for the first time a clear view of our surroundings. The tide had changed and the wind had fallen. We lay in the center of a placid river, high and dry, as Ned had said, with the current gently rippling against our bow. No more than ten yards to the right was a low marshy bank covered with scrub underbrush of a tropical nature. On our left, however, and some fifty yards distant, lay a well-defined bank marking the edge of the stately forest which I had observed the night before. The woodland gradually sloped upward from the river, and above it, far to the south, a formidable range of mountains was visible. Between us and this left bank, the water seemed a fair depth, but it was quite shallow on our right. It seemed wonderful that any gale could have sent so big a ship so far up the river. 
but I remembered that the billows had followed us in, and doubtless their power alone had urged us forward. Here we were, anyway, and here the Gladys H. must remain until demolished by time, tide, or human endeavor. For the rest, the air was warm and pleasant, with a blue sky overhead. Aside from the loss that would follow the salvage of the valuable cargo, we had good reason to thank Providence for our fortunate escape from death. I felt I had done as much to promote the interests of the owners as any man could, but the conditions had been adverse, and the responsibility was now theirs and not mine. The gravest part of the situation, so far as I was personally concerned, was to get my men into some civilized port where we could find an opportunity to get home again. Also, I had to notify Mr. Harlan by cable as soon as possible of the location and condition of his cargo. The loss of the ship I knew would matter little to him, as he asserted this several times. And now to solve the problem of our location. I had reason to believe we were not varied to any great extent from the course my chart had indicated. Somewhere, either up or down the coast, was Cologne, the Atlantic terminal of the Panama Canal, and to reach that place ought not to be especially difficult, because our small boats were in fairly good condition. The river made a bend just ahead of us, and my first thought was to get out a boat and explore the stream for a way. We might find some village, I imagined, or at least some evidence of human habitation. So I ordered the gig lowered and took with me four men, besides Duncan Moyt, who wanted to go along and beg the privilege. The current was languid and easy to breast, so we made excellent progress. Bend after bend we made, for the stream was as crooked as a ram's horn, but always the forest towered on the one hand, and the low marshy flats prevailed upon the other. Rowing close to shore under the shadow of the trees, we could hear the stealthy sound of wild beasts in the wilderness, and once we spied a sleek jaguar lying flat upon the bank to drink. But there was no sign of man or civilization of any sort. Even the woodsman's axe was nowhere to be in evidence. We hugged the forest for several miles, finding the river easily navigable for small steamers. Then we decided to return and follow the edge of the opposite marsh, which was much less inviting and less liable to be inhabited than the other shore. We were scarcely a mile from the ship when Moit suddenly exclaimed, Is that not a canoe? Where, I asked. He pointed to a small inlet, and I could see plainly a craft that looked like an Indian dugout lying among the reeds. Let's go see what it looks like, I said, hailing with some satisfaction this first evidence of human handicraft. At the word my men rowed in, and the sailor in the bow uttered a startled cry. What is it, I asked. Without reply, he drew the canoe alongside our boat, and we could all see the form of a dead man lying flat upon his face on the rough bottom.